Uh, I forgot one thing, so I was going to Revelation 20. Uh, we served 900 meals. Uh, if you watched online on Sunday, I said 899. And then somebody said, hey, we have one more cup at the very end. So we had 900 meals that we served. And uh, we had over 100 volunteers. Uh, super awesome. And if you were here for it, you, you know how packed it was in here. And just so thankful for so many who led and who served. Uh, Know, from behind the scenes to up there in front, uh, just so many people came together for that, and uh, it went really well. And we impacted so many people, and we got a lot of follow-up to do. So be, be looking out for that when we get get to that. So uh, yeah, uh, Revelation 20. If, if you have your Bible, Revelation 20. If you if you didn't get a handout, um, they should be somewhere, and. Uh, we got a lot to, to kind of cover here tonight, but a couple weeks ago, we looked at the kind of dispensationalist approach or the interpretation of Revelation 20, but really it's the premillennial view. It's kind of what we looked at last time a couple weeks ago. Uh, and we're specifically looking at verses 1 through 10 in Revelation 20, uh, 1 through 10. So just remember our drawing, right? You got, I think you got a line there. On your handout. It's a marker that doesn't work. So remember your, your drawing here. Right? You got Genesis 1, 1 over here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And here it is kind of eternity. Right? This kind of line represents kind of our timeline, so to speak. Right? And somewhere in the middle, you got, right? Jesus. You got the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, the word become flesh, which is what we are celebrating this season, right? Um, so you got the birth of Jesus, you got the life, the ministry, the teaching, and then ultimately the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, but also the ascension of Jesus as well. And then you get the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, right? We see this in Acts. And so you kind of get Jesus plus the beginning here of the church, right, as he institutes that new covenant in his blood, the last or the Lord's Supper there. And uh, so you got Jesus here, and then you kind of come down a little farther on your line, and you can do like three, three little marks here. You got your seven years of tribulation, and then you got your 1,000 years. This is what we're focusing on right now, the millennium. Right, so you've got your seven years of tribulation, you've got your 1,000 years of millennium kingdom, or the millennial kingdom, millennium, and then after that you get new creation, new heavens, new earth, and then just, you know, eternity. So, the different views are, you can represent that with three arrows, remember? And so you got, like, the rapture. Um, so if you're a pre-tribulation view, which uh, a traditional dispensationalist, the kind of view that we've been looking at, will be most likely going to be a pre-tribulation view, which says that the rapture is going to happen pre-seven years of tribulation, right? The church will be raptured out of the world. Uh, if you're a mid-tribulation view, you believe at the three-and-a-half-year mark, the church will be raptured out of the world. Or if you're a post-tribulation view, then you're going to say, hey, we're going to be here for the seven years of tribulation and then the church will be taken out of the world. And then you get to the 1,000 year millennium, and then you can represent that by two 
beginning and one at the end of that. So if you're pre-millennial view, which is what we looked at two weeks ago, we'll do a real quick recap tonight, and you believe that Jesus is going to come down pre this 1,000 years and establish an earthly, physical, literal kind of government here on earth and kind of set up shop in Jerusalem, uh, geopolitical Israel right now, set up shop in Jerusalem and reign there with the church, which is, we'll see there's different views of that. Uh, but that's what you believe. So if you're a pre-millennial view, you can't believe that. If you're a post-millennial, you believe that uh, there is a literal 1,000 years, but we're going to progress into it, and then Jesus will come back at the end of the 1,000 years. And if you're an amillennial view, uh, again, we'll look more of that tonight, then you are ah means like no, no millennial. So they will see it later on, they'll see it as symbolic. So anyway, this kind of just helps you kind of remember kind of the different views. Uh, and again, we can write a, a, a book on everything, multiple books have been written on everything. Um, but last time we read this passage, Revelation 21 through 10, and then we looked at that pre-millennial view. Um, and so with this view, you can see in your handout here, pre-millennialism, uh, just think literal, right? Just think literal. When it comes to this passage, Revelation 20, 1 through 10, uh, and you hear premillennial view or premillennialists, just think literal. L-I-T-E-R-A-L. And so again, tonight I want to read the passage and then we'll quickly review that premillennial view, the thousand years, the millennium, and then we'll look at the post millennial view. And then I'm going to share very briefly why you have these different views on Revelation 20. And what I'm going to introduce at the end of tonight is, is I'm going to talk more about it, especially as we get into the book of Revelation starting in January, because uh, you're going to see why there's all these different views on Revelation. Uh, again, it's just so much. Uh, but anyway, the next, next week we're going to wrap this up. And, uh, and we're going to kind of pull these views up to kind of Scripture, New Testament, Old Testament, the context of Revelation, and see which one might be more plausible. Um, and so, yeah, so let's look at Revelation 20, 1 through 10. Let's just read that, and then we'll kind of look at these different views. So this is John writing. He's on Isle of Patmos. We'll look more of that when we get into the book. But here we go. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, and the angel was holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, or to the abyss, and he was holding a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and who is Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the pit, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, again, we're going to look more at this passage when we walk through Revelation uh, next semester. But we, we, what we're focusing on right now is this, this specifically the thousand years, this millennial reign, this millennium kingdom. And this is really the passage where it comes from. Uh, but just a quick review, the pre-millennial view, right, which says that Jesus is going to come down pre the 1,000 years. Um, and this view, as this whole last night, pretty much held by at least traditional dispensationalists. Um, so what is the millennium? According to the premillennial view, and this comes to your handout here, the millennium for the premillennial view, the millennium will be a literal period of 1,000 years. So based off Revelation 20, they say, hey, it's going to be a literal period of 1,000 years, sometime in the future, but after the seven years of tribulation. So they would say, hey. We just read it, Revelation 20, specifically verses 2 through 7, six times. The millennium kingdom is specifically said to be 1,000 years in length, giving the precise time period of the millennial kingdom. Right? So they would say, hey, it's a literal period of 1,000 years. Number two, they would say that the millennium will be the literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and promises, and some of the New Testament as well, but specifically the Old Testament. So the millennium will be the literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and promises. And according to this view, they say, hey, listen, the prophets of the Old Testament predicted such a time as the millennial kingdom. They bring up Psalm 72, Isaiah 9, again, entering the New Testament with Luke 1. And they would say that without the millennium, None of those prophecies could be fulfilled. Thus, they would argue that it's a literal fulfillment, and it must be the literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and prophecies. And they would say, hey, listen, there's countless passages that point to the literal reign of the Messiah on the earth, and that the fulfillment of many of God's covenants and promises rests on a literal, physical, future kingdom. And that the unconditional covenants in the Old Testament demand a literal, physical return of Christ to establish the kingdom. And so what are those promises and prophecies that they're talking about given to the covenant? So they would say, well, the covenant promised Israel a land, a future ruler, and a spiritual blessing. They look at Genesis 12 for this. 
It said that, hey, he's got to promise Israel a restoration to the land and occupation of the land. And that goes to Deuteronomy chapter 30. When we say land, especially in those first five books of the Bible, the author, who we believe to be Moses, is talking about the land that was promised to Abraham and to his descendants, right? The promised land. Uh, so they said the restoration of the land and the occupation of the land. They, they look at Deuteronomy 30 for this. They also say that the covenant promised Israel a king from David's line who would rule forever, giving the nation rest from all their enemies. Second Samuel 7 today. So they would say at the second coming, according to this view, these covenants will be fulfilled as Israel is regathered from the nations. They look at Matthew 24 for this. And is converted. They look at Zechariah chapter 12 for this, and maybe Romans uh, 11 as well. And restored to the land under the rule of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So when Christ returns to the earth, he will establish himself as king of Jerusalem, sitting literally on the throne of David. And David will kind of be his right hand man, kind of like a vice president, some of them believe. Um, and they will rule the world in righteousness and godliness and uh, for a thousand years. So, number three, the millennium will have perfect conditions. So, your next point there. So far, we've got the millennium will be a literal period of a thousand years. The millennium will be a literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and promises. And then the millennium will have perfect conditions, at least kind of. Because uh, as we'll see, they still believe that there will be some sin and death there. But either way, it will be a time of peace. It will be a time of peace. They look at Micah 4, Isaiah 32. It will be a time of joy. Look to Isaiah 61 for this. It'll be a time of comfort. Look to Isaiah 40 for this. There'll be peace in the even in the animal kingdom. They bring up the passage where uh, it talks about lion will lay down with the lamb and so on. Um, but basically, the millennium will be very, very nice, very pleasant. Um, and so, according to the traditional view of this, every believer who's alive or deceased. Uh, will be taken up into heaven, right? The rapture, taken up into heaven, and we will remain there for about seven years while the tribulation is happening on earth. And once that's over, then Christ will return to the earth with his believers or with his, with his church, and then we'll enter that millennial kingdom. But there's differences there, um, because if you, again, you go back here to Revelation 20, you're reading about how. Uh, where John says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. In other words, martyrs. And so some people say, no, the only people who are coming back with Jesus for the thousand years are those who are martyred for the faith. Uh, you have others who say, no, it's, it's reserved specifically for ethnic Jewish believers. That's who it's reserved for. And these promises during that thousand years are going to be fulfilled. Um, basically, the promises that were, that were promised to ethnic Israel uh, so they said, no, no, it's going to be ethnic Jewish believers. Uh, so there's debate within who actually comes back with Jesus. The traditional view is that all Christians would come back and reign with Christ. Um, and this will happen after he defeats the armies of the world that have formed against him. Uh, because as they say, after the battle is over, the Bible says all Christians are going to be part of this new reign or government. Uh, Revelation 24 Read, they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So, 
we the church, those who love Christ, follow Christ, or are in Christ, will stay on earth with him, will rule and reign with him throughout the whole world, uh, will receive rewards for faithful service, um, and part of our heavenly reward will be to reign and rule with Christ upon this earth during the millennium, according to the premillennial view. Uh, and so that's number three. The millennium will have perfect conditions. Also, the next one here, the millennium will bring extended lifetimes. Extended lifetimes. Uh, they're going to be uh, just living long lives, long, healthy, nice lives. Uh, and so, yeah, so there'll be extended lifetimes. And according to this view, you'll still be, you know, people still be getting married, people still having babies, things like that. Uh, but you'll just have extended lifetimes. It'll be a time of peace and, and rest. So very nice, very pleasant. Life is just kind of going on. Jesus is literally here in Jerusalem. I guess the planes are still around. You can fly over Jerusalem and have some coffee with them or something. I don't know. Um, but that's how, that's kind of what the vision is there. Um, but this brings us to our next point. However, there will still be sin and death in the millennium. Um, so it's not quite perfect in the sense that we think of perfection. Uh, but there will still be sin and death in the way it will just be very minimal. Uh, very, very minimal. And so, so that's the next one. Then, uh, what really is the purpose of the millennium according to the, the pre-millennial view? The overall purpose of the millennium is to, uh, number one, reward the people of God. Reward the people of God, again, to, you know, for your faithful service here on earth. Uh, even as you see there in Revelation 20, by those who came back with him, uh, the first resurrection, they're beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. So they're being rewarded for that, that faithfulness and loyalty. Um, and so the purpose is to reward the people of God. Number two, the purpose is to fulfill prophecies and promises in the Old Testament to fulfill the prophecies and promises in the Old Testament. Another overall purpose of the millennium, according to this view, is to answer or to fulfill the disciples' prayer. They bring up Matthew 6 on this, and really the, the Lord's prayer, right? Uh, praying for his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They say, hey, that's this is when that will actually be realized, uh, that that prayer will be answered according to this view. And then number four, just to remind us of sin and our need for Jesus. So again, there's still, according to this view, there's still going to be sin and death, um, but there's also, you know, you can tell me about Jesus. You, you know, Jesus is going to be here, so people's hearts and minds will be open still to the gospel and have the opportunity to turn to Jesus, recognizing their own sin and need for Jesus. Uh, so that, in a nutshell, is just a review of the three-millennial view on Revelation 20 uh, that we talked about a couple weeks ago. But what about the post-millennial view and the off-millennial view? Well, first, let's look at the amillennial view, because the post-millennial view just kind of combines both views in a way. 
We'll look at it briefly in just a moment. Uh, and again, many people were post-millennialists, especially going into the 20th century. Uh, but then what happened in the 20th century? A couple of world wars, a lot of bad things happened. And so over the last 100 years, more and more people have become kind of in the pre-millennial camp. And a lot of people last 20 to 30 years, we'll see why at this moment, have started falling in that amillennial camp. Uh, I don't know about a lot. I'm not saying like the majority, but the majority are still pre-millennial. I'm just saying it's become more popular than recently. So first, let's look at the amillennial view. Um, and it views Revelation 20, right? It views Revelation 20, these verses we just read, the amillennial view views Revelation 20 as symbolic. So here's your next point here. Amillennialism, faith, um, symbolism, or faith, symbolic. So if somebody says, hey, I'm an amillennialist, that, that means they're most likely their interpretation approach to Revelation, we'll see this in a moment, is going to be more symbolic. They see these things as symbolic. Uh, so they would argue that it's full of symbolic imagery, largely because of what type of writing it is. It's, it's apocalyptic literature. And so apocalypto, remember, is this Greek word for revealing. It's where we get the book of Revelation, right? You know, Revelation 1.1 uh, says the revelation from or of Jesus Christ. And so this is where we get apocalypto, is this word that, that means to reveal something. And so, uh, apocalyptic literature is, is always revealing usually something in the future. And oftentimes it uses imagery to try to make something understandable to its current audience that is beyond comprehension to that kind of audience, at least as far as the nitty gritty practical things. Uh, and so they would argue that apocalyptic literature is full of symbolism, metaphors, analogies, things of this nature. Um, so they would argue that Revelation 20 is symbolic. They would also tell you, notice what Revelation 20 does not say. Notice what Revelation 20 does not say. Well, let's first look at the imagery that they say is symbolism. So one of the first things they bring up, I put the list here, this is some of the highlights here, uh, the chain. So they would say, hey, already you see symbolism here. You have an angel coming down out of heaven, carrying with it a key and a chain. And they would say, hey, coming from a spiritual world, is not going to be holding like a little chain, you know, like a chain you might go get an athlete or something like that, you just kind of carry it with you. Um, they would argue that the chain is symbolic, representing power or authority. And they would mention how, you know, they bring out some of Paul's writings, but also some of the gospel accounts, uh, in essence show that, that Jesus has authority over everything and everyone, seen or unseen. And so they would say that the chain is not like a little chain that they're going to wrap Satan with, you know, and, and stick him in a jail cell, but it's more of a, a power, authority, a force. To drive him out. Um, so they would, say, they would say, hey, listen, the chain is not a physical, literal chain, but it's more symbolic of power, force, or authority. Uh, the second thing they bring up uh, in this passage is, is the dragon or the serpent. 
Uh, it says, listen, he's not a literal dragon. He is Satan, the ruler of this world, who was a fallen, rebellious angel. Uh, Odeshar, right, you see in the Old Testament. And so he's not a literal dragon, but it's more symbolic imagery. Uh, and it's, they would say it's, it's imagery that's connected to earlier on in the book of Revelation as well, uh, especially if you think about Revelation 12. Uh, but again, we'll get more of that kind of connection when we get into Revelation. Uh, so they would say, hey, that's kind of imagery here. And then they bring out their biggest thing they bring out is the thousand years itself is symbolic. Uh, they would say, hey, it's not a literal time, but a symbolic time to represent an indefinite amount of time or to represent kind of the fulfillment of a specific time. And so they would argue and say, hey, listen, all throughout Scripture, anytime this expression is used or this number is used, 1,000, it's always symbolic. It's symbolic of a, an indefinite amount of time, or it's symbolic of the fulfillment of a specific time. They bring up passages like Deuteronomy chapter 7, where we read that, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations, or to the thousandth generation of those who love him and keep his commandments. Of course, that's a figure of, figure of speech. It's an expression to say it's never-ending. Uh, for those who love him and keep his commandments, he's faithful to them forever and for the end of all things and, and beyond. Uh, so they also bring up Psalm 90, verse 4, which Peter also quotes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, which Peter in 2 Peter 3 remembers talking about from the events around the end times. But they quote Psalm 90 verse 4 where it says, A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. Or a thousand years is like a watch in the night. But their argument is that, hey, it's, it's always used as a figure of speech. Um, but I would argue that in Revelation 20 it's used differently than these other passages. These other passages become very clear that's a figure of speech. Whereas in Revelation 20, it does seem that John is seeing a specific, definite amount of time. Uh, so it's used a little differently, but they do bring up that point uh, that it's always used figuratively and especially in apocalyptic literature where it's full of symbols and imagery that it would be symbolic. Uh, and so you have a thousand years there. And even though, too, I'll bring up this argument against that, is even though for God, time is it's not irrelevant, he's outside of time. So, yes, a second is to be, you know, like a billion years. I mean, you can get, use that kind of figure too. But that doesn't mean that he's not very precise with time. And we, we've even looked at this with a historical context of Jesus becoming, you know, God himself becoming one of us with a very specific time. And even if you look at, you know, some of the prophets like Daniel, uh, those 70 weeks that we talked about, especially with I mean, yes, whereas a thousand years like a day, we're going to say like a thousand years. That doesn't mean that it's not very precise with his timing, you know. Uh, as Esther famously, right? For such a time as this, Mordecai said that a bit. But, anyways, uh, but they would say, hey, it's symbolic, it just means an indefinite amount of time, or it's referring to um, the fulfillment 
uh, of a specific time. Another thing they look at is Gog and Magog, uh, or Magog, however you want to pronounce it. And uh, we've heard these two before, uh, but they would argue that they are symbolic references to enemy forces, enemy nations, enemy peoples, raging war against Israel. Even as we see in Revelation 20, right, how Satan kind of uses God and Magog to kind of attack God's people, wage war against them. Uh, even as we see, they, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and of the beloved city. The beloved city would be like Jerusalem. And so we see that it's just kind of raging war against his people, kind of like what you see in Revelation 20, where you see the dragon raging war against his offspring and so on. Uh, but they would say, hey, it's a symbolic reference to an enemy or force, an enemy nation, an enemy people group or something, raging war against God's people. So for them, it's, it's uh, for the Amalekites, it's symbolic, but it's also literal. It's kind of both. It's, it's literally symbolic, or it's literal, but also symbolic. Now, we hear these Gog and Magog a lot. Uh, there's not many references, though, to them throughout Scripture. But some of the big references are like Genesis 10, where you get Noah's kind of descendants. You remember Japheth, one of uh, Noah's sons? Well, one of uh, Japheth's uh, descendants is Magog, and we see that in Genesis 10. But another big reference point. And this is really where, where the connection to Revelation 20 uh, kind of comes from here, is Ezekiel 38 and Ezekiel 39, where God is the chief prince of the tribe of Meshech and Tubal, again, going all the way back to Genesis 10 there. And they he is kind of the chief priest of the tribes uh, in the land of Magog. And he is called upon by God to conquer the land of Israel. So with the great coalition of forces from throughout the world, God and his entire army will invade Israel like a cloud covering the earth, as we see in Ezekiel 38, 16, and will plunder and loot all their cities. God, however, though, will send terrible natural disasters that will destroy God and his forces. Um, so the defeat of God will demonstrate the greatness and holiness of God and restore good relations between God and his people, as one source says. Another source says it this way God and Magi in the Hebrew Bible are the prophesied invader of Israel and the land from which he comes. And also, I mean, you see the climax of this in Revelation chapter 20. So here in Revelation 20, though, the Amalekites will argue that yes, they are literal, but they are also symbolic. And many people have tried to you know, kind of read into this and try to figure out who is God, who is Magog, who are these two forces or people groups or nations that will rise up against God's people. Uh, we hear this all the time, different theories thrown out there. So they would say, hey, it's symbolic, but it is literal. Just another example that this passage is meant to be taking. Yes, it's full of truths. Yes, it's full of uh, facts, but they're also presented to us with imagery and symbols that it says. So also, besides symbolic imagery, according to the Amalekites, there are things that Revelation 20 does not say. Matter of fact, it doesn't say a whole lot. Uh, most of like the premillennial view, all those things that you see earlier on in your your uh, the paper here, 
most of that we have to gather from elsewhere and kind of, you know, basically insert it into this time period in Revelation 20. Um, and so they would say, hey, if you just stick to this particular text in the context of Revelation 20, it's actually not saying a lot of those things is what they would argue. So they would say, hey, it doesn't say that there won't be wars and famine and whatnot. It doesn't say that there won't be death and sin. Uh, all it says is that those who have been, what does he say? Uh, so, seated on there were those to whom the authorities of judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, and those who had not worked with thieves, repented, and not received a smart on the forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And that's all it, that's all it says, is that they were reigning with Christ for a thousand years. It doesn't say anything about in that particular time. It does later on in Revelation, but it's a different time. It doesn't say there won't be wars and famine and whatnot, or even death and sin. It also, they would argue that it doesn't say that all evil forces, all spiritual demonic forces, will be bound. Only that great serpent, that great dragon, who is Satan the devil, uh, he is the only one mentioned who will be bound. And they would argue, meaning there will still be spiritual war going on in the time period. And they would argue that his imprisonment has a specific purpose to stop deception. Right? To stop deception. Found him for a thousand years, prisoned him, seven, sealed over, and so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Uh, so basically, the Amillennialists would argue that it's symbolic. Basically, the imagery here in Revelation 20 is symbolic, referring to or applying to things earlier on in the New Testament or other um, moments and imagery in the book of Revelation. Uh, and again, we're going to see why here in just a moment, because it has to do with their approach to the book of Revelation. Uh, but they would argue basically right now we're, we're in the millennial kingdom. Right now Jesus is reigning and so on. Uh, we're in it right now, those kind of things. Uh, but those are just some of their highlights. That's the amillennialist view. So when you think of amillennialism, just think symbolism or symbolic. And then you get to the post-millennial view. Right? So that's that last arrow down there. The post-millennial view in a way kind of argues for both. And we've looked a little bit at this view. We won't go too in depth with it. Uh, but this view believes in a progression towards this 1,000 year reign on earth. Or really, 1,000 years of peace. Where, God, where basically God and through Jesus will implement a time of peace. Uh, no war, no famine, no real bad things like that. Just be a time of peace and prosperity. Um, specifically with his people, kind of in good position, hierarchy in the world. So, with the post-millennial view, this comes to your next point here, post-millennialism, think progression. Think progression. Uh, we're not there yet, but we're getting there, right? We're progressing, right? Uh, very popular in the Western world, right? We hear, you know, all sorts of things about us progressing. We gotta progress, we gotta progress. We just tweak this, we just fix this, we just add this. You know, we can we can progress towards this utopia here on earth. No bad things, 
no dark things, no natural disasters, no death, no all these kind of things. Um, and it just doesn't seem to be working. It just seems like we, we just keep messing it up. But anyway, they would say, hey, we're just going to keep progressing towards that. Uh, and so they don't really, the, the traditional post-millennial view doesn't believe like Jesus will literally come down and actually be in Jerusalem reigning literally with the government or something like that. But they do believe in a literal 1,000 years. And so they would see kind of Christ's reign as symbolic and through his church, reigning from heaven and so on. Uh, but that they would argue that there will be a literal 1,000 years of peace and prosperity specifically for God's people. Uh, so again, it's really, if you take the premillennial view and the postmillennial view, or the amillennial view, the postmillennial view is kind of a combo of the two. And so that is those three views in a nutshell, okay? There are variations to about everything within each view. Um, but you ask, why are, the, why are the differences? Why are there so many differences to the approach to Revelation 20 and to the book of Revelation in general? Well, the reason is, is because there's about five very popular, what we call, hermeneutical approaches to this book. Now remember, hermeneutics is a fancy word that just basically means interpretation. All right, it's your process and method for interpretation. Uh, when I got to seminary, biblical hermeneutics was my first, one of my first classes I took. Um, and so there's really five interpretation methods or processes um, with the approach to Revelation. The first four that I'm going to mention here tonight have been the main approaches throughout church history. The fifth one is becoming more and more popular over these last few decades or so. So I'm just going to initially introduce them here tonight, and if you have any questions on them, I'll try to answer them here in just a moment. Uh, I'm introducing them tonight, but these will come back into play when we get into the book of Revelation. Uh, and, and trust me, there, especially in the Southern Baptist world, there's an eclectic group of people who fall in these different categories. So let's look at it real quick. Approaches to Revelation number one, the futurist approach. So you're filled with blank number one, think of future view. Future view with this. So this view says the way it interprets the book of Revelation is once you get to Revelation 4.1, from that moment forward, everything is happening in the future. So meaning it has not happened in our lifetime yet. So for us, it's going to happen in the future. Uh, may happen in our lifetime, right? Uh, but it's going to happen in the future. So the futurist view, think of future view. Specifically, beginning at Revelation 4.1, from that point forward to the rest of the book, it's all going to happen in the future. The second view is the historicist view. So with this, think we're in it now view. So we're in it view. So meaning, so the whole book of Revelation occurs between 
the first advent of Jesus and the second advent of Jesus, whenever, depending on your interpretation, whatever that is, the second coming of Jesus. But they would say the historicist view says Revelation concerns the time of Jesus and the birth of the church all the way up to his second advent. So it, it basically is referring to events and times in between those two. So it's kind of like we're in it now, basically. So with that view, the historicist view is just like we're in it view. The third view is the preterist view. So the preterist view think it's finished view. So that third one, preterist, you can write it's finished view. So the futurist and the preterist view really stand in contrast. So if you're hold to a futurist view, you're most likely going to be a pre-millennial. You're going to take the pre-millennial view. You're going to be kind of a traditional dispensationalist. If you take the preterist view, you're most likely going to be an amillennialist, and you're going to hold to a lot of you know, symbols or imagery or things like that. Not necessarily, but most likely. So you said, what is the prayer view? It's finished view. That means everything we're reading in the book of Revelation has already happened. It happened, and I'll explain a little bit more of these in just a moment, but it happened either right before or during the time of John writing this book on the island of Patmos. Most of us believe in the early 90s AD which if you're familiar with the New Testament timing of when the books were written, um, Revelation is the last one written probably about 30 years post pretty much everything else written in the New Testament. So the preterist view say, hey, it's referring to everything that has already happened in John's lifetime or around John's lifetime. Then number four is the idealist view. Think of it's symbolic. This is the it's symbolic view. So this will also be with those who tend to be amillennialists. But the idealist says, hey, all of the book of Revelation, it's, it's very prophetic, it's apocalyptic, it's all imagery and symbols, um, as we'll see, kind of referring to some truths and some principles, but these are timeless truths and principles. And so the idealist view, think of its symbolic view. And then the fifth one, which is becoming more popular here recently, is the eclectic view. So you can write it's a combination view. Is that the easy way out? I don't know. But it's the eclectic view. It's a combination. So they would argue that the futurist, preterist, and idealist view. So the, out of the four views, all four of them minus the historicist view. They would argue it's a combination of all of those. So the book of Revelation, some of it is symbolic, some of it is meant to be, you know, imagery, and yes, it is apocalyptic literature, very prophetic kind of literature, which just in and of itself, that type of writing, a lot of imagery, analogies, metaphors, so on. But it's also, yes, referring to things in the future, yes, but it's also referring to things that have already happened or that are currently happening right now. So that's the eclectic view says, hey, it's a combo of all of those. So just really quickly, let me just expound on those just a little bit more. Uh, so again, the futurist approach, understand everything from Revelation 4.1 forward, 
forward to be prophecy of things that are to occur just before the second coming of Christ. So usually the futurist view is going to say that basically the book of Revelation, post-Revelation 4.1, is about these right here. The seven years of tribulation, and then at the end of that, the 1,000 years millennial kingdom. But mostly really about that seven years of tribulation. So they would argue that most of the book of Revelation is prophecy, referring to the events of the time period right before the second coming of Christ. Uh, so again, they would argue that all these events are still in the future from us from our perspective, 21st century, you know, 2023, in Oklahoma, it's still in the future for us. Um, and they would, they would argue uh, that they take this position because they would say there's no correspondence between these prophesied events and anything that has yet occurred in history. So they would say, hey, what we're reading, we've never seen that before. It's all new. Thus, it hasn't happened yet. And then number two, the historicist approach, again, just understands Revelation to be a prophecy of church history from the first advent to the second advent. So again, it's just referring to things that are happening it's kind of an eclectic approach, but past, present, and future. But then again, the preterist approach, again, is most clearly contrasted with the futurist approach. It basically says that most of the prophecies in the book of Revelation were fulfilled, uh, again, right before John wrote this book, during John writing this book, or right after. Uh, and they would bring up the fact that, like, uh, the mission was uh, the Roman emperor during the time in which John wrote this book. And he served as Roman emperor from AD 81 to AD 96. So think about it. Remember, we looked at this from a historical context. Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. That war ended in 73 AD at Masada. Uh, but he was the third and last member of the Flavian dynasty. So his, his father, Vespasian, was the Roman general who was besieging Jerusalem in 68 when Nero died and the empire was thrown into chaos. Uh, and then his son Titus, so Vespasian's son Titus, finished the work of destroying Jerusalem in 870, and upon his death of his father in 79, he ascended to the throne. So when Titus died in 81, his younger brother Domitian became emperor. So all you need to know about that is Domitian's family was the one that played the role in destroying Jerusalem. And so he was the last remaining one of the Roman emperors, and he made believe that he was the one that had John sent to the island of Patmos, and that's why John is there. And many people said he did horrific things to Christians, and the church, and so on. And so the first approach would say, hey, listen, look at the historical context, look at all that happened post-Jesus' ascension into heaven, and the time of John writing his book in the early 90s AD, so much happened in that 60-ish years. Uh, they would say that what John is writing has already occurred. Uh, so that's the preterist approach. Number four, the, the fourth major approach is that idealist or symbolic approach. Um, and again, they would say that Revelation does not contain prophecies of specific historical events but instead it uses symbols to express timeless principles concerning the conflict between good 
and evil. Uh, it goes the extreme on the symbolism scale. Basically, just you know, allegorizes almost everything in the Book of Revelation. And then again, number five, the eclectic view. Um, this is just saying, hey, uh, there's top of all this going on in the Book of Revelation. One of the proponents of this view says the solution is to allow the preterist, idealist, and futurist method to interact in such a way that the strengths are maximized and the weaknesses of each view minimized. So those are the five big approaches to the book of Revelation. And why do you know that is because depending on your hermeneutics, which again can be greatly impacted by how you see the rest of scripture, uh, whether or not you see certain prophecies as having already been fulfilled, being fulfilled right now, or yet to be fulfilled, uh, your hermeneutics will greatly impact which camp you fall in when it comes to Revelation 1. And really how you envision these events leading up to the second coming of Jesus. Uh, so, going into next week, we have some questions we need to ask. Uh, and we kind of said we need to answer these a couple weeks ago, and we'll seek to answer them next week. But we need to ask, okay, which approach is best? The, the premillennial view, the amillennial, the postmillennial view, and especially as we get into the book of Revelation, which approach to the book of Revelation is the best view to take? Um, but when it comes to the millennium, specifically in Revelation 20, those 10 verses, we need to ask what's the immediate context? Um, what's the immediate context within Revelation, within the New Testament, and connection to Old Testament prophecies and promises? Because the book of Revelation is full of basically every other line is an Old Testament reference. It's uh, it's incredible what John is writing, and uh, it just kind of humbles you when you think about. Oh my goodness, this imagery is fascinating. Uh, so, what are those Old Testament prophecies and promises um, specifically referring to, and, and is that what John has in mind and what God has in mind with this book? And so we also have to ask, what has Jesus already accomplished? Or what has God accomplished in and through Jesus with his first advent? What has he already accomplished in and through his life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, right? The, the, the new covenant. What, what has he already accomplished and fulfilled in and through the giving of the Holy Spirit? All those things we have to ask. And then we also have to ask, what does Jesus ultimately have in store for those who love him? And for those who remain loyal to him until death do his part, so to speak, right? So the very, very end. Uh, what does he have in store for his people? So that is it in a nutshell. And so next week we're going to seek to kind of look at some of these other passages that tie into this and see which maybe which one's more plausible to say. Any questions, though, on any of that? There. <laughs> Some of the different angles within this talk is a work in progress because there's so much to it. And I think they all have their merit, some more than others, but they also all have their weaknesses too. And so Definitely on the approach to Revelation, I tend to fall in more of the, 
the eclectic view, and I'll explain more why as we get into the book of Revelation. Uh, but you know, I, I I can definitely see where the trimillennialists and the amillennialists have some things in common, but then I also see where they're way off on some things. And so come back next week and you'll give me my full my full answer. So. Any other questions? All right. You know, I uh, I was I was giving the staff a hard time because we we're we're getting ready for this Christmas Bible trivia, and what I love doing about that is actually challenging: Do we know what Scripture actually says versus just whether it was in a song or in tradition or something like that? I got. I had to correct my dad because we were talking about Esther, right? And he kept saying, Morde- he kept saying Esther's dad. And talking about the story, he said, you know, Esther's dad is this, Esther's dad is this. I said, I said that Mordecai is not her dad. I said, Mordecai is her cousin, you know. And we'll see. And he probably knew that, but in that moment, he just kind of forgot, you know, and he kind of created something in his mind. And so we were, I was challenging them to uh, my question, and I don't want to give the answer away, but. One of my questions with the Christmas Bible trivia is what did Mary and Joseph ride on their way to Bethlehem? And I get it's multiple choice. Was it A, a camel, B, a donkey, C, they walked, or D, we don't know? You know, and they're debating, like, oh my goodness, you know, what, they, you know, what did they ride? What, how does it go? What's that bird? And all that kind of stuff. And then they thought they were going to say, we don't know. That was what they're going to land on. But then I said, come on, just think about it. You know, and Mary and Joseph went riding on a, and they're like, oh, it's a donkey. Yeah, that's what it is. And they, they were convinced. Oh, it's a donkey. I said, wrong answer. We don't know. The scriptures never actually say. And uh, I got, it was, it was better than that. But I got them like perfect to show them how easy it is for me to implant something into your mind. I said, oh, this is what scripture says. Actually, doesn't say that. And so, my challenge, I think, with all of us, when we, when you hear doctrines, or, you know, people say, "Hey, this is what's going to happen here." Is that, man, just let Scripture sometimes speak for itself. You need to always do that. Uh, even I think it was Charles Spurgeon said, "You oftentimes read scriptures, you know, telling ourselves what we think it ought to say, rather than letting it say what it actually says." And so, whether we're talking about end times, whether we're talking about your personal life and your walk with Jesus, let Scripture interpret you. And sometimes you might be humbled to find out, oh, Mordecai was not a truth for that. So, anyways, truth was out there. But come back to that trivia. I'm going to see if you get it. See if you remember my answer there, too. Um, let's go a little bit in prayer. Father, we just come to you. We thank you for tonight. Father, I pray that. Especially as we come across difficult passages or difficult texts, maybe it's a particular season we're in, or just whatever it might be, or we've heard different approaches to it, different interpretations. Lord, I pray that in all things that you would give us wisdom and understanding, open up our hearts and minds to see the truth, to know the truth, to live the truth. But in all things, Lord, help us to be one in Christ, to be in submission to Christ. To remain loyal to Christ no matter the pressures, no matter the temptations, no matter the challenges we face in this life. Help us to remain loyal to you. 
We thank you that no matter what events are going to happen this way or that way or when or how, Father, we know that Jesus is coming again. That Jesus is alive. And that changes everything about today and everything about tomorrow. What you have in store for those who love you is an eternity and glory with you forever and ever. A whole new reality. We look forward to that with hope, with anticipation, with joy, with gladness, with thanksgiving. But also, Lord, help us to go and tell our neighbors to share this hope with them. Especially in this Christmas season, as we celebrate and remember the first advent and look forward and anticipate the second advent, Lord, help us to invite our neighbors converse with our neighbors about the good news of Jesus. So your glory and praise in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, thank y'all. We'll see y'all next time.